Okay, let's uh, have a brief recap and then move a little bit further in, in what we're doing. What we're trying to do is we're trying to give um, insight into, into a way of working with ourselves which follows a certain sequence. And right now what I'm spending time presenting is the basic model. The model of, of how growth occurs, um, what stages does one do, why, what things, and try to sink in the natural development in the normal life cycle with what we should be working on, what we, what we could be accessing at every stage of our, our growth in terms of passing through life and developing the, the refining, the inner parts of ourselves. So the basic format began with a presentation that the three positive traits which we focus on, which forms almost like a basis to, to constructing a healthy sense of self and something which can then lend itself towards transcendence. Those three traits are a combination of what's called chesed, gvura, and emet. Chesed is the ability to extend, to expand, to reach out and do kindness, to love, to, to be out there. Gvura which is uh, might, strength, is the ability to <coughs> contract, it goes in the opposite direction, as a, thematically as a meta, to contract, to control oneself. And finally you've got emet, which is the balance of the two, knowing exactly how far to extend and how much to contract. And what we further discuss is, within each of those developmental stages of growth, in those particular metas, there's, there's a stage-by-stage stage development. There's a first stage of chesed, a second stage of chesed. Um, Banai. There's a chair, there's a chair, just there. Just there. So there's a first, second, third, and fourth stages of chesed. We explored them. We explored them yesterday. Um, and the day before, and we went on to Gvura, and um, let's take a little bit further today. Began with the first stage of Chesed. Now, I want to just like kind of reiterate these things because we need to create the flow. The first stage of Chesed is a person's capacity to be aware of his own personal needs and to nurture those needs. Without that stage, so development development to the second stage never happens until you feel that your own needs are taken care of. If you feel this gaping hole, that you are needy, that there's something inside of you which hasn't been addressed, there's no way you're going to be able to be expansive enough to reach out to another. So a person having that solidity of self as a starting point for reaching out to others is crucial. In the life cycle, that's a stage of infancy where a child is nurtured by its mother and it learns that its needs are important and they responded to. Stage beyond that is when you actually now have that in place, but not fully developed and you're partially in the home, you're partially outside of the home. Outside of the home, you can extend yourself, you can engage in friendships, you can reach out to others. Inside the home, you're still primarily nourished by your parents and that next stage 
which is relevant to cursing marriage when both those relationships happen not at the same time but within the context of marriage. Sometimes you're giving, sometimes you're receiving. It depends on the situation and the state. And finally the transcendent level is when both of those are, are fused into one. When the act of giving becomes an act of receiving and that's a transcendent stage. That's where, the, where in, the, in the actual movement of the different directions of the emotional current, the movement forward is in itself the movement backwards. The extension is in itself the contraction. The first stage of chesed, which is a self-nurturing stage, in chesed as well, in these developmental stages, there's contraction expansion. The first stage, self-nurture, is going inside. Socializing is going outside. Marriage, that relationship is going inside and outside in the same relationship but at different times. And finally, giving becomes taking when a person becomes altruistic, when they become selfless, when they're able to get their own pleasure from someone else getting pleasure. And that's a transcendent level. And that's the stages of development. What we haven't explored is how to go from one stage to the next. Because we just now, we're presenting the model. But it's important that we have all the models and then we can discuss, hopefully we'll get into more of the practical details of how does one make the journey from self-nurturing all the way to transcendent giving whereby your joy is actually from others and not from your own needs being fulfilled. Then we went on to the next meta which is called Gvura. Gvura which means strength or might is the ability to hold oneself back. That implies a relationship to some kind of authority outside of myself or within myself. And what we did is we traced in Gvura three stages. The first stage of Gvura is the authority that we have when we're again in early childhood, infancy to early childhood, whereby we need to have an external form of guidance. Because as a child, as a baby, we don't yet have the cognitive or the emotional maturity to be able to make wise decisions. So essentially what happens is, as a child develops in early infancy, the parent plays the role of the authority figure and guides the child in wise and unwise decisions, sets standards and creates an external system of what's called gvura, an external system of knowing when to hold back and when to move forward providing parameters and boundaries for behavior. <coughs> the next stage is when a person internalizes the authority and is able to weigh up things for oneself and decide things are good or bad, self-discipline, to restrict oneself from self-destructive behavior and to engage in positive behavior. That's when the authority figure moves from an external source, which it was in childhood, to an internal source, which should occur in adulthood. Now what can happen as an um, aberration to this process, is sometimes if the maturation process, there's many things that can go wrong al- along the way. One of the things that can go wrong along the way is that the, instead of the authority being passed from parent to be internalized by child, actually the, it can be passed from parent to society, or from parent to peer group. And still the child struggles for his own independent identity, his own independent control of self, and instead of using his parents' guidelines, he just borrows the guidelines from the more important people in his life at that point in time, which may be his peers, or it may be his social group, or maybe society at large. And if that happens, so then still a person doesn't yet discover an own internal authority. There's no real gvur at that point in time. 
However, if a person does make their transition successfully, so what happens as a result is he now is in control, he's a fully independent being, and he has the capacity to gain control over um, guiding and controlling his decisions and often having to restrict and contain his own behavior because he understands the notions and the parameters of right and wrong. That's stage two of Gvura. Stage three of Gvura is again the transcendent stage. And just like in stage four of Chesed, where the giving and the taking become fused, and the act of giving essentially becomes an act of taking, an act of receiving, that you derive the same joy that you previously derived from self-nurturing, from nurturing others, the stage, and this is a really tricky stage, and I'm going to have to negotiate carefully here, because it has a whole set of premises attached to it. The stage, the third stage of Gvura is again the stage of transcendence, where the stage of choice and submission of choosing to be and relinquishing, relinquishing choice become interlinked. Um, let's trace the, the, the direction of the early stages of the Midas development when it comes to Gvura. First stage of Gvura is when the parents become the authority and essentially, you, you, again, it's, it's a contracted sense of authority. You're not making decisions, someone else is imposing the decisions upon you and you're following their bidding. The stage that's a contraction. The stage beyond this when you make the decisions for yourself, you're expanding. And the ultimate stage is what's considered the acknowledgement of a higher being, what we consider the acknowledgement of Hashem, and it's called Yira, which is the Hebrew word for God consciousness. So the God consciousness is the ability to acknowledge that once I have gained control of my own resources, of my own self, of my own autonomy, I can give up that autonomy when I realize that my perception of my world is limited. I'm not all-seeing, all-knowing. I'm not omnipotent. And when I realize there's something above me and I, I make a choice to sacrifice, so then my choice of submission is a simultaneous acting as an expansion, but ascribing to a high authority is a contraction at the same time. The two become fused. But you see that if a person becomes brainwashed into religious observance, and there was never an independent, autonomous self to begin with, so then that's not submission, that's merely substituting a premature, undeveloped self for one system opposed to another. There's a crucial, that, that the middle stage of autonomy is an um, imperative link in submission. You can't submit when there's nothing there to begin with. You can only submit an independent self. And the reason for submission is the acknowledgement of something greater than me. In other words, there's many ways of dealing with this. The, I, 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 I knew it's, a very, it's a very subtle point, but essentially what, it can, what can happen is it's often related to a trait known as humility. The trait of humility is the power to, to be able to disengage from one's ego and let go of narrow, defined limitations of self, which is one of the most petrifying things you can do. And in doing so, the fear is I will lose myself. And the paradox is I can gain a much greater sense of self. I'll try to illustrate it with, with a, uh, half, a, half a kind of analogy. 
let's say that a person's sense of self, when he's autonomous, is based on defining strongly his characteristics. I'm this clever, I'm this capable, I have these values, and I, I'm, I'm operating in a system which is very, very constructed. And I know how far it goes. I know, I know how far I can extend. So even though it's an autonomy and it's independence, but the independence by nature of my human condition has limitations to it, which cannot be broken down. I can't be, I can't stay awake for seven days straight. I need to rest. I can't be brilliant in mathematics to the nth degree and science and art. I have limitations to my intellectual capacities. In terms of my emotional world, there's sometimes I get impatient, I get frustrated. I'm not unlimited in anything that I have. So each trait that I have, there's a boundary. This is how far it goes and no further. So those boundaries of self create a, a defined structure. And the defined structure, inevitably, in an infinite universe, is small. It's tiny. It's minute. When a person has a realization of what's called submission of a genuine, authentic self, you realize, you know what? There's something much bigger than me. And essentially, in relation to the bigger, more powerful force in the universe, we call Hashem, the Creator, whichever name you want to use. In relation to that, everything I have is essentially nothing. So what happens is, at that point of submission, you become the smallest and the greatest thing simultaneously. Because the minute you start to devolve yourself, to disengage from definition of self as all the limits of the parameters that you've set for yourself, so you lose yourself. But at the same time, from a different perspective, it's the most expansive moment you could ever have. Because that loss of self in relation to submission to creator means that now you no longer these particularities of the expression of your being, you're, much, you're a part of a global, more powerful being. You're part of a greater energy. So you're the biggest and the smallest you've ever been. I, I've had experience with people who I feel embody this trait of humility. And one of the f- feelings that you get when they're around is they take up no space. It's a strange thing. But the, at, at one of my children's breasts, we had, to, as the, 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 chi- the person who held the baby, the Sandik, we had um, a, a, very, um, a very special uh, a very special person. He's, he, he, gives a, he delivers a, a lecture in, in the Mary Shiva, and um, his name is Reb Ashareli, and he's got, he, he has a daily, a daily share that over 500 people attend on the spot. He's an, he's, a, he's an incredible, incredible teacher, embodiment of Torah, and he takes up no space. So, to the degree that this is like, it's anecdotal, but it's reflective. No one actually was aware of who, who was holding the baby. It's not because they, they didn't see him. But some people, when they come into the room, they make their presence felt. And some people, when they're humble, you're not sure if they're in the room or not. You can physically see them, but they have such a, an air about them that they take up no space. And when a person takes up no space, there's a whole lot of related things which occur in a dynamic with them. In a dynamic with the person that takes up space, there's always an underlying um, direction to the way the dynamic works. Above, below, face to face. When a person takes up no space, the dynamic becomes directionless. Because there's no, the only analogy can, I can think of this is um, 
it's an analogy which is which is my own. I relate to it. I don't know if anyone else will. But in Tai Chi, you've got this thing called your center, and everything moves from there. So every movement, you, you meant to have all your all all your muscles relaxed, and you meant to generate energy from the center point. I'm not speaking in a mystical. I'm speaking in 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 a, in, a, in a physics way. So if I hit you, not that I want to hit you. I don't want to hit you. Well, maybe like a little snap. But I don't... When I generate energy, there's two ways I can do it. I can use a muscular power. So that means I can go like this. And the power and the force of my blow is based on the strength of my muscles. But I'm very tense when I do that. Alternatively, I can move from the central region, let's say from the hip area, the area just below my belly button, and I can create incredible force while retaining a relaxed... A relaxed um, limb. Now, the whole point is that you can, in, in Tai Chi, one of the ways that the, the, the so-called combat occurs is pushing hands. Don't know if any of you guys have ever seen pushing hands. So pushing hands, you basically have, you have two people, and all they do is they're moving, they move around in a, in a circular fashion um, to demonstrate. Maz, come up here. So pushing hand works a little bit like this. Okay, stand with your right foot forward. Okay, so now what we do is we just let, easy, easy, but relax, relax, relax. Sure. Just follow my hand, follow my hand. Has anyone done Tai Chi yet? <laughs> Sorry, my defense. Tai Chi, any martial art? Come, Josh. Okay, so, so, right foot forward. Can't turn sideways? Sideways. Okay, so now, okay, just relax. Just go with, just go, follow my hand. Follow my hand and gently move your body as you, you know those move back and then just so almost as if the force. So this is a, this is what pushing hands is all about. You completely relax. Now what I want to do is I want to catch him in your center so I can push him over, and you want to move to the side. So try and push me. So I try and move my center out the way. So wherever you push, push. I'm not there. Push. So you, that, and that's how pushing hands work. Now, if you manage to get the guy in the center, and you've and Tai Chi masters, they can concentrate energy in the hand. So then they boom, and you shoot to the other side of the room, right? If you manage to get the right spot, thank you, thank you, thanks, Josh. But but the point was the point is that you can only create a sense of conflict when there's somewhere on the other side that's going to oppose you. But if every time there's nothing there to push against, so you can never get, you can never push the person down. So the way I understand humility is that you let go of the self so there's no one standing there that can be pushed against. Because all the things that you ascribe to yourself, they don't become identities, they become ways of, of expression. Now, that was a little bit vague. I would like to clarify that. But just in terms of general direction. The d- general direction is that the, th- the third state of Gvura, of this authority, is considered submission. Whereby you're able to take your autonomous self and you're able to let it go in terms of a higher authority. That you don't, you don't, need, you don't need to cling on to the ego identification in order to have an identity. Because ultimately you realize that that identity is limited and it's small and it has severe boundaries attached to it. And when you do that, at the same time you become grand and huge and gigantic and absolutely tiny. You have all the presence in the world and none of it. I don't know if that was coherent to anyone. So what she's saying maybe is that you're just communicating with the person. You don't have to give up yourself. That's, a, that's, that's one of the kind of ramifications is that 
in a, in, in a dynamic, it's not like I have to get my point across. Because yeah. it's, like, it's open. It's open, there's a flowing, there's a sense. So it's, it's, it's a lofty level to ascribe to, but it's just, uh, I'm just, at this point in time, we're just describing the, the model, correct? Yeah. So, right, so far, we've described in the model is Chesed, Gvur, and Emes. In Chesed, there's four levels. In Gvur, there's three levels. And now I would like to um, just briefly begin the discussion in terms of the word Emet and its relationship to the final stage of growth. So when we're discussing Emet, it's often translated as truth. I want to kind of discuss a little bit about the notion of truth, which which inevitably allows us to raise um, our awareness of lying. And when we think about lying, so there's different categories of the way we lie. There's the deliberate, malicious, outright lie, where you tell a lie, someone was... It was a scary story. I, I was speaking to a guy and he said to me, you know, I said, what do you do? He says, an auto mechanic. <laughs> so I said, it's probably lying. But he was telling the truth. And he he's actually is a very straight guy. And he's telling me what he's, the, the, he says it's hard for him to find a place to work in because people were, that he was working with were so crooked. And so eventually he did find a place. But he said the kind of things they would do is the following thing. As they fix the car, they'd make a small hole in one of the... Um, in one of the pipes, so that in like six months' time, there would be an oil leak, and you'd have to take your car back to the mechanic. Oh, yeah, there's an oil leak, and fix it up, and then leave another like, kind of scar there, so six months' time, you'd have to come back again, and again, and again. So what happened with him, there was a person that came into the, came into the, into the garage, and he said to him, listen, he thinks there's a problem with transmission. He says, when the customer says there's a problem with transmission, so then you know you're going to sell him a new transmission. So he looked at the transmission, there's nothing wrong with it, just need a bit of oil. But he said, listen, that's, that's like, including labor, that's $300. If you replace the transmission, that's $2,000. So he finds out the customer, and he says, listen, your transmission's gone. There's nothing we can do with it. But luckily, there's a car that's just been totaled, it's just coming to the garage, and there's a perfectly new transmission, we can just put in the new transmission into your car. Um, and we're going to get it, it would cost you $2,000, we're going to give it to you $1,500. The guy says, you're amazing, thank you so much, this is great goes to the car, takes the transmission out, <coughs> paints it, cleans it, puts it back in, comes away with $1,500. That's called a malicious lie. There's no truth to that. And he's doing it for profit, for own personal gain. That's the first category. And they'd say that's the, most, that's the most offensive of all lying. Then there's another category of lying where a person does an outright lie, but there's no profit. You just, you just, you just say it because it's convenient to say it. Um, where were you this morning? I was, uh, I was, I was dumping at the cartel. Sure. So that's, that's an outright lie, but it doesn't really, it doesn't bring you profit, it's not malicious, it's not, it's not damaging. Then there's a lie, which is a lie that you're aware you're telling, but it's a white lie, it doesn't really hurt anyone, and it doesn't even get you out of trouble. You just, you make up a story, you say, you know, I was, I was, I was actually walking down the street, and I saw this whole, like, it was an amazing thing. I saw this group of Arabian horses galloping down the, next to the train. Really? Yeah, sure. And you just made up the whole thing. It never happened. That's, that's, then there's a kind of lie that you don't know it's a lie. You think you're telling the truth. In your mind, you haven't said anything wrong. It's just that the facts that you're reporting were slightly different, and you interpret them in such a way that they kind of are put across and it's a complete misrepresentation. So when we speak about truth, we have to figure out where does truth begin and where do lies end? Now of all those kind of lies, obviously the most 
difficult one to deal with is the lies we tell ourselves. And the lies we tell ourselves are absolutely ridiculous and they're non-stop and they kind of inhabit our way of thinking and perceiving and even the lies we tell ourselves about ourselves. There's a, there's a great book written by this guy called Dan Ariely. He's quite a popular novelist and, not novelist, social non-fiction writer. And he writes about, he's got all these series of experiments and he's got a book called uh, something like The Lies We Tell Ourselves. And he does a series of experiments about, for example, a person, the effect that a person has a, on a person's integrity and honesty when he buys a false Prada bag. Probably she buys a false Prada bag. What does it do? And like he does this interesting experiment. We feel people who have recently bought fake items are more inclined to lie. Or he's got like a standard test where you, you can, he has a sample and then you test people. They have to say how many answers they got right. And he knows the average of how many answers people get right. And he works out how much people are lying. And he says there's a direct correlation between people who buy, they say, fake goods and the amount of lies they're willing to tell. So you see there are these lies which are insidious and they're subtle and they creep into our day-to-day life. So when we start speaking about the third level, and we have to also understand why does it progress in that order. You start with Chesed, you get to Gvura, and then you learn to MS. We have to think about the nature of lies themselves. I just want to mention before we stop, one more point. In the relationship between Chesed and Gvura, Chesed is that first stage where a person is, experiences the whole relationship internally and externally of love. And then Gvura becomes the next stage. If there is no first stage of Chesed, the stage of authority will become completely distorted. I'll give you an analogy of a parent. If a parent doesn't initially nurture, care for, and give everything to the child but immediately without having the care imposes authority and creates demand on the child so the child will learn to hate authority because the only authority we respect is an authority where we feel that it's there with a content of care and love and our interests at heart an authority which is there to cruelly impose ideologies upon us we resist against so unless a person can actually progress from Chesed to Gvura, Gvura will turn upside down. And what's interesting is you often find in, in the religious world where people have not had a nurturing background and have had the authority of religion placed upon them at an early age, often they will, they will rebel against it. Because they respond to this imposed authority where they feel that the, 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 the source of the authority, which should be from Chesed, from love and understanding, is not present. So then the authority itself becomes meaningless. So the, the progression from Chesed to Gvura is a crucial one and a necessary one. Tomorrow, mm, tomorrow, Wednesday there will be no class. On Thursday, <coughs> which is a fast day, I'm not sure if there will be a class or not. So we'll either continue Thursday or Sunday. Thank you very much for your attention.